for him for me before I get up and preach. Good singing, by the way. I haven't heard singing like that for a long time, so that's great. I thought the choir was here, so there you go. And that's genuine. You are. Yeah, there you go. Very good. Thanks, Ross, for your mention of um, a reminder that we're in between the time between the resurrection and the ascension. Next Sunday is Ascension Sunday for anybody that follows the church calendar. I know that because I'm preaching in Cambus Lang uh, next Sunday morning and I've gone, given, been given that theme. So, uh, But uh, I've chosen to preach on one of the events that took place in between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension because as we know Jesus appeared to so many people during that time apologists Christian apologists have made much of the resurrection appearances where Jesus appears to 500 people at one time uh, in the face of those who are saying they were all though they're just having hallucinations but 500 people don't have hallucinations all at once and Jesus eats and drinks with them. Yet his body is changed. He can appear in a room with locked doors and then disappear. But he's not a ghost. He's not a, an apparition. He says, touch me and, and see that I'm real. He says this to Thomas who doubted his resurrection. And there's uh, so much in the evidence there that was so convincing to these early disciples that they put their faith in him and gave themselves wholeheartedly to the work of, uh, of the gospel. And from the day of Pentecost, when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon the believers as uh, they waited, they went out boldly in the power of the Spirit, preaching the Word of God, getting arrested and saying, judge for yourselves whether it is right in your eyes that we uh, obey you rather than God, but we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard, the resurrection of Christ. And do you want further evidence of it? History. We trace this very meeting all the way back through the decades and the centuries to the time when those early apostles, early disciples, went forth in the power of the Spirit, leading thousands of people to Christ who gave their lives for what they knew to be true. It was only those, be uh, those beginnings. But the encounter that I'm going to um, bring to you this evening is in John's Gospel, chapter 21, and we'll be reading that in a little while. But it's a strange encounter. It's one where Jesus meets Peter on the seashore. Have you ever fallen out with somebody and you didn't really want to fall out? You had no intention of falling out with them. Maybe it was their fault. Maybe it was your fault, but it's not great. When you fall out with somebody, when you've got a good relationship with somebody, and all of a sudden something happens somewhere along the way, and it all goes totally pear-shaped, and you don't know how to fix it. A, a relationship that's really meaningful to you, and you want to fix it, but you don't know how, you're at fault, it can be very difficult to sort it out. Well, Peter's in a situation like that. And he's not the only person we can read of in the Scriptures where things went wrong. I mean, in the parable of the prodigal son, we've got the story of how this pretentious young man decides that 
starts with a little dream, a daydream that, oh, it'd be nice, wouldn't it, just to be off ski. Imagine if I had the money that my father had, or even the money that he's going to leave me when he dies. I could be off and I could do as I like rather than be stuck here. A little dream, a thought, you know that adage, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. And he's on the trail. Before you know where, uh, what's happening next, he's off, he's done it, he's out of his mouth and his father gives him what he wants. And, and there's this separation and he comes back and he wants to be reconciled to his father. The relationship that was valued at one time had been broken, had been spoiled. It's true of Esau and Jacob. Back in the Old Testament, Jacob, too smart for his own good. Oh, he knows how to get the better of Esau. Esau, he's just a bit naive. Father's favorite, dysfunctional family. Jacob, mummy's favorite. And a little bit of manipulation going on between mother and son in order to get the birthright for Jacob, Jacob and steal it from Esau. And if you know your Old Testament well, you, and if you don't know the story, it's a great story to read. He steals it from his brother and it brings about a separation and animosity and bitterness and resentment and deep feeling between them until one day Jacob wants to put it right. It's a wonderful story of how he's sending camels and goats and donkeys and all kinds of things ahead of him and people and gifts to Esau before he arrives somehow to send a message to him saying, I really want this badly. And it's great when you're reading the story of how they make up and they embrace and they weep together. But here's Peter. Oh dear, things have gone wrong for Peter. Well, let's read the story in John's Gospel, chapter 21. We'll read the, well, we'll read, um, where will we read from? 15. Maybe we should read just from the beginning. Let's read from the beginning. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. Well, that's what he's going to do anyway, isn't it? He doesn't know what else to do, isn't it? That's what he's used to doing, so he's going back to his old ways, in a sense. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you didn't know that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they went out and got into a boat, and that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you, got, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Then throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Ah, this is familiar. He's done this before. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. 
The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw the fire burning, coals there, with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. There's a statistician somewhere, wasn't there? 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you, didn't, where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. In, um, I don't know when it first started, but the film and media can change from time to time. And they seem to have speeded up so much the way they put a plot together. You get all the bits, you don't know where the whole thing is going, and then all of a sudden it all comes together. It never used to be like that. It used to be a straight old storyline. But some of the things you see in films these days is it starts right into an action scene, and there's this, that, and the other, all happening. You think, have I missed the beginning? And then a caption comes up one week earlier. And it takes you back to the context and it brings you up to speed with where the scenes began. And it's a little bit like this reading John 21. What's this conversation about on, on the seashore between Peter and Jesus? What are the subtleties within the language that Jesus is using? What's going on? If an observer was watching and watching the body language with, between Peter and Jesus, they would say, something's going on here. It was a work of reconciliation taking place. Why? Because things had gone wrong between Peter and Jesus. Peter had let himself down a week earlier or thereabouts. Human relationships can be complicated. Well, they are complicated. It's very easy for things to go wrong. We can have great intentions and then we can end up letting somebody down. And it can even happen with God. 
I don't know whether you've thought, I'm your man, I'm your woman, Jesus. Come what may, you know, I'm really on fire for the Lord. Doesn't matter what things, what happens in my life, I'm really going to make it for you. I'm going to be the best of the best. Doesn't matter what anybody else does, I'm never going to fail. I'm never going to let you down. And perhaps being a little bit too confident in our own ability. Peter was like that. What was he like before? Well, Peter, a lot of people like Peter because a lot of people see a bit of Peter in themselves. And we can identify with some of his nature. He's a little bit rash. He speaks before he thinks. He has a high expectation of himself and then he lets himself down. He's loyal and brave and strong in his imagination but fearful and weak under the test of difficult circumstances and downcast when he fails. The head goes down, the confidence is gone and he reflects upon it. We see that a couple of times, two or three times in the Gospels. So what's going on in the space between Peter and Jesus. There's a bit of a coincidence here. They're warming themselves by a fire. Peter's drying himself out, but there was another fire that Peter warmed himself by just not long before when he remembered the words of Jesus that had been spoken to him. And he remembered the words that he spoke to Jesus. It was a fire in a courtyard where Jesus had been arrested. Peter was terrified even though he had ventured into the courtyard to watch. He had wanted to be loyal to Jesus. And Jesus had attempted to, had, uh, attempted to prepare Peter for what was going to take place. Peter says to Jesus, even though all the other disciples deny you, run away, I will never deny you. And we know the story. Jesus says to him, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Now, did he really believe that was going to happen? Well, it was the words of Jesus. Oh, Peter tries. He's there when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and he's the one who draws his sword and cuts off the, the ear of the soldier. Or the servant of the high priest, I can't remember who it was. And Jesus miraculously heals him and says... I've not taken an army. I'm not a soldier. I'm not fighting that kind of battle. Yeah, he tries. All the other disciples run off. Peter is courageous enough to go into the courtyard. He's having a go at it. But when someone says to him, I recognize you, you were one. No, it wasn't me. Wasn't it me? Nope, nope. Ah, oh, yeah, you've got the accent, you speak like one. No, no, no. And a third time, and then he hears the cock crow, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Because what Jesus has said has come true. He's let himself down, and he's let Jesus down. Oh, I think we've all been there. Letting ourselves down and letting Jesus down, even though we had great intentions. We've all done it in the past. We might do it in the future. We might do it big time in the future. 
you might have done it recently. And it's when we think and revisit situations like this in our own lives that the Word of God comes alive to us because we long for that close relationship with God. And if something has come in and spoiled it, and it's kind of all our fault if we're going to blame, because there's going to be a blame game here if we start blaming ourselves or thinking, well, yeah, I was at fault. I failed. I had a high expectation of myself, and I let myself down, and I know I have done wrong, and I know how it's affected my relationship with God, and I know how it's affected my relationship with somebody else. It's strange how close those two things can be at times. It's in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I used to think about that when Jesus said, for if you do not forgive those who sin against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your sins. I used to think of that in terms of losing your salvation. You know, if I don't forgive somebody else, ah, I'm going to lose my salvation. I don't understand it in that way. I understand that in terms of relationship. Yeah, that inasmuch as I am unwilling to be reconciled to a brother or sister in Christ, inasmuch as I am unwilling to, to take steps if God calls me to do so, in order to be reconciled, that is going to affect my relationship with God in the same way. And as much as that relationship is broken down, in, in the, to the same degree my relationship with God is broken down. And there has to be a willingness in order to put ourselves right with others, in order to be right with God. But here, Peter is trying to do both. He's trying to be right with God and he's trying to be right with Jesus. And yet God and Jesus are the same. It's horrible when it happens. We let ourselves down, we stop praying. We don't know how to pray because we've let God down. We don't mean it. Peter didn't mean it. And where is he now? Well, we fast forward to real time. Real time on the beach. I can't remember when I first heard the expression, an elephant in the room. It's a great expression, that. The elephant in the room, addressing the elephant in the room. The, the thing that everybody is thinking about, you know, it's like when the preacher's preaching, uh, watching a preacher preach, and he was going like this, going loudly with his hand gestures like that. There was a handkerchief. He'd stuffed up his sleeve. And he kept going like this, and he was preaching, and everyone's watching this handkerchief getting further and further out of his sleeve. The elephant in the room. Everybody's thinking it. Everybody knows it. The preacher doesn't know it. Until the whole thing's dangling right down like this. And then all of a sudden he sees it. And instead of taking it away, what did he do? He stuffed it all the way back in his sleeve and carried on. But things, you know, it can be in a room and everybody knows, or something has happened. Something has gone wrong. Something has been said, and nobody's talking about it, but everybody's thinking about it. And that's what's happening here when Peter and Jesus meet up because they haven't met up like this to have this kind of conversation addressing the issue. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Mm, maybe something in that. Jesus doesn't just pass the time of day politely and ignore it. 
He gets straight to the point. I love it. Actually, it's not very comfortable for Peter. He's direct. Simon, do you love me more than these? What's the more than these? I used to think about that. I used to think, do you love me more than these? And being a fisherman, I think of 153 fish, wow, you know. Do you love me more than the fish? No, it's not. Is it, do you love me more than these other disciples? No, I don't think that's what Jesus meant here either. What is Jesus, what does Jesus mean here? He means surely, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because that's what he was claiming right at the beginning. Even though all the other disciples forsake you, I will not forsake you. It's a claim that he loved Jesus more than the others. Do you love me more than these? There's a little subtlety in the language uh, here, but uh, we'll, we'll come to that. But Jesus is using the word agape. Do you love me? That, you know there are different Greek words for love. Two of them are agape. And agape is that love, that, the self-sacrificial love that they had to create a word to describe the kind of love of Jesus that is sacrificial, self-giving, altruistic to the ultimate, the one that loves the object so much that it unselfconsciously gives sacrificially everything out of love. That's the cross of Christ. That's agape love. Filio love, filie, filio, sorry, filio love is different. It's friendship. You know the word of um, philanthropy. You know, it's about fellow man and fellowship, that sort of thing. It's, um, it's more of a friendship. So what's going on here? He's saying, do you love me more than these? Why is Jesus asking? Is it that Jesus doesn't know, so he wants an answer to the question? No. Jesus knows Peter's heart. So why the question? It's not to punish him. It's not, I told you so. He doesn't have any intention of humiliating Peter. Jesus challenges Peter with this kind of question in order that Peter might know his own heart and know that he really does love Jesus. And Jesus shows him there is an outworking to this. He's not finished with Peter yet. The devil would have us believe that when we fail big time, that we are failed for good. We're written off. We are failures. You can write it. You can put it on a placard. You can wear the badge, failure. Tried and tested and failed, we turn a verb into a noun. That's what Satan would have us do. Fail does not mean failure. Steve Ortberg reminds us of that in his book. We can fail a thousand times, but we are never failures. The verb of failing does not create the noun of failure. It does not define who we are. Loads of examples of that. Abraham Lincoln, who ran for all kinds of senates and this, that, and the other, and he didn't make the grade. Time and time again, until eventually he did. 
Thomas Edison. If there's any scientists here, you, you could probably tell me how many times he made a light bulb that didn't work. Oh, here's another light bulb. Bump. Nope. Try again. Until finally, he got the formula right and succeeded. Edmund Hillary, how many times did he try to climb Everest and failed before he got there? If any of them had said to themselves, I'm a failure, they would never have attempted it. If, if any of them thought that the verb was actually a noun that defined who they were, they would have stopped. Peter was not labelled a failure. He wasn't labelled a failure when he got out of the boat walking on water and sank. And he wasn't labelled a failure after denying that he knew his Lord. I hope you've never labelled yourself in that way. That's something if we say something like that. If we say something that is untrue over ourselves like that, it's almost as though we lock ourselves in a mindset that is actually untrue. In God's sight, none of us are labelled failures, even though we may fail. And here, in this conversation we have with Jesus, Jesus releases Peter somehow in the questions that come to him, begins to speak about his future. We've looked at his past. We've looked at the present situation on the seashore. But what about Peter's future? What's going on in this conversation with Jesus? It's three times that Jesus asks him the question, do you love me? It's more than a coincidence that it's three times. For how many times was it that Peter had said that he didn't know Jesus? It was three times. It's almost an undoing, as it were, a reversal of what had taken place. And Peter has learned something through this. What's he learned? Humility through painful experience. Because Jesus' words are, are high and mighty. You know, Do you love me more than these? Agape love. Peter's response, you know that I am your friend. He uses the word filio. If you look into the original language, that's the subtlety here that's going on. He's not saying, yeah, agape love. More than, I love you more than all the other disciples. No, he's not saying that. You know that I'm your friend. Oh, that's the bitter experience of having boasted more than we can actually deliver and learned our own weakness and our own need of the grace of God. And we need the grace of God. And he asks him a second time, Peter, do you... Agape, love me more than these. He says, I'm, you know that I'm your friend. 
phileo. And then in the passage, Jesus asks him a third time. The interesting thing is that when he asks the third time, Jesus uses the word phileo. Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? And he's using the word phileo, and it says that Peter was grieved the third time that he asked him. Why would he be grieved when Jesus kind of drops it from agape to phileo? Why would he be grieved? I don't know the answer to that. I just imagine that he's grieved because he remembers that this is three times and he's remembering what happened and he's remembering how he let Jesus down and here Jesus is still persisting with him and he's grieved because he knows now. He can't really boast of loving Jesus like that. And his response is, you know all things. You know that I'm your friend. What a change has taken place when he realizes that he tried it and he thought he could do it and he couldn't. Oh, he's learned so much here. Learned about his weakness, learned about the forgiveness that God offers, learned that God doesn't write him, didn't write him off as a failure. It wasn't that God had had enough with him, that all he had in the future was fishing. It's what he knew before because Jesus tells him what's going to happen. And for every time he says to him, do you love me? He says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. I've got something for you to do, Peter. Your future is not determined by your past. That's a, a release, isn't it? A wonderful thing to think. Our future need not be determined by our past. Our past failings do not limit what God can do with us. Our past failings, as we recognize our weakness and our need of God's grace and forgiveness, can shape us and create in us a humility of heart that otherwise we would not have because we cannot deny but that we have been weak and are weak and vulnerable and in need. And for further reassurance, Peter tells Jesus that one day when he's tested, his faith isn't going to fail. It's Eusebius, the church historian, that tells us that when Peter went to Rome, his, uh, uh, the close, close to the end of his life, he was imprisoned, and Eusebius tells us that his own request when he was crucified, Peter, he chose to be crucified upside down because he did not feel that he was worthy to share the manner of his Lord's death. And this is what's behind these words here that Jesus uses to describe that he's going to put his hands out like that. Somebody's going to bind his arms and hands and take him to where he doesn't want to go. Peter, in the future when you're tested, you're going to make it. You're going to live up to the expectation that you aspire to. But I've got a ministry for you in the future. 
One of the strange things about, well, one, of the, one of the good things, I suppose, spin-offs of preaching in a congregation where you don't know anybody and you don't know anybody's circumstances. Um, nobody can actually say, who's been speaking to you about me? Sometimes, sometimes people think that. Nobody <laughs> has spoken to me about any circumstances that you may be going through. But if something in this connects with you, hear it as a word from God for you that is to lift you, that is to release you, that is to deliver you, that is to bless you, that is to strengthen you, that is to advise you, that is to illuminate you, and is to show you that Whatever may have happened in the past does not define you as a failure, nor does it determine your future in any detrimental way at all. New beginnings with God, new every morning, is the grace that comes to us from God. He still asks, do you love me? I suppose our response could be like Peter's you know that I'm your friend. We'll pray. Father, it is with uh, humility. We have no choice except to come with humility before you in humility because we recognize within ourselves the faults and failings that perhaps we see in Peter. We aspire to such great heights and fall so far short. But we thank you for grace, forgiveness, and for love. We would profess our love for you. We pray that you will empower us to live out our faith in all of our relationships and in all of our ways. And I pray, Father, for any person that we know or even a person here who needs to hear the encouragement that comes from your word, that they will not treat themselves any more harshly than they would imagine that you would treat them, for you are kind that they would not block the forgiveness that comes from you and the grace that comes from your hand by saying, I refuse to be forgiven. I refuse to forgive myself. But rather be open to the grace and forgiveness that comes from you to sense your love and your presence in their lives in a fresh and living way. In Jesus' name, amen.